0: Welcome to the Beef Watch Podcast. I'm Aaron Berger, a Nebraska Extension beef educator. For today's Beef Watch Podcast, we will be discussing an article that Dr. Mitch Stevenson, Dr. Jerry Bolesky, and Extension educator Ben Beckman wrote for the May issue of the Beef Watch newsletter titled Flooded Sandhills, Subirrigated Meadows, and Upland Sites. To discuss this topic, I'm joined today by Dr. Mitch Stevenson, who's a Nebraska Extension Range Management Specialist. Thanks for joining me today, Dr. Stevenson.
1: Thank you, Aaron. It's good to be here.
0: The focus of this article is really about some of the impacts we've seen over the last couple years of much above average precipitation across areas of the Sandhills. In fact, there's areas of the Sandhills when you combine 2018 and 2019 precip are almost double the long-term average. Uh, This has resulted in some situations where we see sub-irrigated meadows as well as some upland sites but have extended periods now of water standing on them and the expectation is that at some point that water is going to begin to be absorbed by the soil and waters are going to recede and we may have some situations where the plant communities where that water was standing has been altered. Uh, Give some perspective on some things that producers should think through uh, if and when we see some of that water begin to be absorbed and some of these areas dry out. What are some things producers should be aware of and maybe some management considerations they should have in place as they think about what to do with these sites.
1: Yeah, there is some places where it's a big concern. And, you know, we've got a number of calls from producers or talking with producers and seeing pictures of uh, some of these places where it's it's just pretty phenomenal what the flooding has done in some of these uh, both wetland and sub-irrigated sites, but even coming up into some of our upland sites, some of these sandy ecological sites. and um, you know meadows are extremely important to the sandhills, not only from a production standpoint, but from uh, their ecological value. This heterogeneity and biodiversity they add to the sandhills is really important for a number of different plant and wildlife species. And as you said, you know, there south of Bassett, Nebraska, the you know Barter Brothers Ranch, you know, we we typically have an average of somewhere around 23 inches. In 2019, we saw 41 inches. And then in 2018, the year before, we saw 33 inches. So just we've had this tremendous amount of precipitation uh, over over the last few years. And so, uh, you know, when you think about some of these areas that have been flooded, I think the best the best way to think about it is, is look at a, a, as there are passive options, and then there are more active options that we can go for. And when we think about passive options. I think the, 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 that that is mainly just uh, monitor and track the changes as they happen. So if it's an area that, the, let's say a sub-irrigated meadow that's had water on it for a couple of years now, you know, it's it's likely that some of the vegetation's not going to be able to withstand and survive that, uh, m- most of it, if it's been underwater. And so it would, be, it would be taking photo points, it would be monitoring what species are there, and tracking that as they come back. And so the biggest thing about that would be be watching out for things like noxious weeds, uh, if, if you had the issues with some of those in the past. Think about, you know, like leafy spurge, uh, maybe there's some other ones that, that you don't want in your meadows that could come back in. So really keep an eye out for some of those and and treat those most often with herbicide uh, to, to really take care of those noxious weeds that were required by the law, state law to control. Uh, and so that's the first one. But I think I think it's also important to think about what species were out there previously. And so so we've, we've been researching way back trying to find early records of what species were in the sand hills and uh, there's been some really kind of neat studies that have looked at, at this and one one in particular uh, goes all the way back to 19 uh, the, the mid 1920s where they were looking at some of the species that were out there and and you know what they found is that, that there were still a lot of introduced species in some of these meadows even early on you know things like Kentucky bluegrass, uh, reed canary grass, which I'll talk a little bit more about, and, and a few other ones that were out there that typically we look at those as introduced or not native to our sand hills meadows, but they've been there for well over a hundred years now. And so a lot of times those have taken the place of some of our native species, which were often uh, some of our warm season grasses, you know, there was big blue stem, there was prairie cord grass, and Indian grass, and a number of these other warm season grasses that typically were out on these meadows. But it, it was quite variable depending on the amount of moisture that was in the meadows. So and in, in the areas that had water that was close to maybe about a foot and a half of the surface, we had maybe more of the cool season grasses and prairie core grass. But as you got up into where water was was farther, a couple feet from the surface, you might get more of these warm season grasses that could still grab some of that moisture, uh, deep-rooted. And then as you got where it was above five feet, then we started to see more of our upland vegetation on meadows. And so uh, they've, they've kind of classified that as, as the, the distance of water in some of these meadows. And so as we think about that and knowing what species are out there, we can kind of say, okay, this is what species were out here. This is what's coming back. And so this is, this is kind of the same community that was there previously, which may or may not be what you want to see out there. You know, it could be, it could be some of these introduced or, or non-native species like Kentucky bluegrass or quackgrass or some of these others. Or it could be some species that, that are highly productive and that you'd like to see out there. And as, as that plant community changes and shifts, you can kind of track that coming back. So I think that's the first option is passive. The next option would be active, and that would be actively seeding species out there where you can get equipped. And so that, that often is, is fairly expensive and takes time, uh, but you are able to, to get more of that seed community of the species you want. Where some of the challenges are there is finding seed of native species, which should be probably considered first because uh, oftentimes native species provide the benefits for more than just forage, they provide it for wildlife, uh, hydrology, other things like that, but the native species especially can be somewhat expensive in putting these mixes together. The other option would be to and introduced species, and you know if you look on a bunch, a number of uh, seed company websites, uh, there's there's certain species that a lot of them have in their mixtures, and, and a lot of times these are these are reed canary grass or Garrison creeping foxtails some clovers, birdfoot trefoil. You know these mixes, and they have they have positives and they have negatives. Uh, you know, putting some of these species might help with for quality and 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 quantity. Uh, that's why they've been selected for, it. and a lot of places recommend them is because they, they can be fairly high uh, production and quality. However, they bring in some ecological challenges and some considerations we need to think of. So re canary grass is one I'll go into. Uh, it's it's fairly prevalent uh, in a lot of meadows, brought in and planted or or just came in through, uh, you know, unknown ways. Sometimes these introduced species end up places we just don't know how they quite got there. But a lot of meadows have uh, reed canary grass, and the challenge with reed canary grass is it's It's aggressively rhizomatous, and so it'll come into an area, and very often it'll form into monocultures. And these monocultures have a lot of negative connotations in that they, the dense amount of, of biomass that reed canary grass puts out, traps silt, it traps water flow going through. It starts growing early in the growing season, so it's able to shade out some of the other species. And a lot of studies have shown that it, it, once, once reed canary grass comes into an area, it really reduces the amount of species richness. So the, the, the number of different species within that ecological community, which then has other effects on insects or birds or just uh, in some of the wetland areas in species being able to get into those wetlands. And so, so that's, that's, that's really a challenge with some of these introduced species is it changes so much the dynamic of those meadows where the, the, the negative connotations might outweigh some of the benefits that you can gain. It's some increased biomass or increased forage quality for the one benefit of, uh, of hay production.
0: Mitch, as you think about some of these areas, both wet meadows and upland sites as the water recedes, you already mentioned this, but just really monitoring what's happening there if you're going to be passive about it. As we think about some of these noxious weeds that can move in, really early detection, rapid response is going to be important. And and we know just that those are tend to be opportunistic. And so how do we think about uh, trying to manage some of those situations if we're trying to encourage some native plants to come uh, reestablish?
1: When, when we think about some of the noxious weeds, it really is all about early detection and early control. Uh, small patches become pretty big patches rather quickly if you don't get on them. And so uh, really getting out there every year, tracking those sites. Uh, I, you know, I often recommend if you have GPS or other things that you can mark those sites just so you know you're going back and checking them every year. Uh, it's really key. Uh, you know, there's a no, number of herbicide options for some of these noxious weeds that come out. You know, if you're really trying to get, if you if you see things like reed canary grass coming into your meadows and you, you want to try to push it back a little bit, there's uh, John Garetsky at the University of Nebraska did a study recently looking at grazing. Well, there's defoliation multiple times during the growing season on reed canary grass as a measure of control. And what, what they found is that, that, you know, even with, with, multiple defoliations it was it was fairly productive they got quite a bit of biomass in most years on this and it ended up being the quality was a, was sufficient for a for a cow during the growing season but you know they they, they did reduce the cover which helped some species richness a little bit uh, in, at one of the sites but overall it, it was still fairly fairly prevalent so grazing alone may not do it or you'd have to really just hit it year in and year out uh, pretty aggressively if targeted grazing was was a measure that you were using for control. Uh, you know, another, another options would be to go in there and disk it, uh, burning it as well as another option. And then there are some herbicide options for, for things like reed canary grass as well. Yeah, thinking through some of those things in terms of if it, if it really is a problem or if it's just a component of the meadow vegetation uh, or if it's, if it's completely taking over the area. If it's totally in an area, oftentimes it's, it's gone through a threshold shift where we think about it more as if, if it's almost a near monoculture, then it, it's, it's maybe more equivalent to a cropland type area where we, we sometimes take na- native grassland out and put into, into farm ground for a number of different reasons. And if an area is completely taken over by, let's say, re canary grass or garrison creeping foxtail, then thinking about that as uh, the main goal is the hayland aspect of it. But, um, you know, I just, I, I, I really think that, that stressing the, the biodiversity uh, and, and, you know, things like species richness becomes important because, the conservation so often falls to the, the producers uh, in the sandhills, and so it, it comes at a cost to them. And so, you know, if there if there are opportunities that they can they can reach out to places like the NRCS or others for guidance and assistance, and maybe some funding on that as part of some of the programs that they can they can apply for to get funding uh, to, to help some of these communities. I think that that would be a really good op- option. It, it may be outside the scope here today of talking about all the programs, but but a lot of the NRCS offices are very helpful and have very skilled, qualified people to help with that.
0: Well, Dr. Stevenson, are there some other resources that you would point folks to in terms of that might give them some perspective and ideas on options as they consider what to do with these sites as the water recedes?
1: Yeah. I- Always, when you go into, if you're, if you're thinking about planting, uh, going into some of these sites, uh, always look at the different species, uh, do some Google searches and really research them. Uh, you know, things like reed canary grass just have a, a multitude of uh, uh, information online in different, different states and different areas that talk about some of their challenges that people have had with planning them. Um, you know, and, and I, I think also just knowing and understanding your plant community. Now you don't need to know every species that's out there, but just knowing the main ones so that, that if you go to an area that has had water for the last couple of years, you can go to some of the surrounding sites that maybe didn't get water and be like, okay, these are the species that were out here. Are they coming back into that area? Or are thing other things coming back in I didn't see there before, or aren't uh, similar to what's what's around? And so uh, a lot of the and and you can really reach out to the, the local extension educators and others. Uh, you can send us pictures, and we'll help you identify your grasses, so you know really what's out there. And so we're not altering that plant community, and we're making sure that some species uh, that are less desirable or maybe even noxious aren't coming in.
0: Well, thanks again for joining me today, Dr. Stevenson.
1: Thank you, Aaron. I appreciate
0: it. For more information on the article that was discussed in today's Beef Watch podcast, I encourage you to visit the beef.unl.edu website.